Good morning. As many of you know, I have a three-year-old, and my three-year-old has two favorite words. I am. And he uses them at all the wrong times. When he's hitting his sister and I say, please stop hitting your sister, I am. And then he hits her again. When I ask him to do something, to pick something up, because he's made a mess and he's not picking it up, and I ask him for the fourth or fifth or sixth time, I am. No, no, you are not. Over and over again. It's in his world right now so often all about him. The things he wants, when he wants them. In fact, there's many a morning where I am partially asleep, still wanting to be fully asleep, and I hear noises coming from the other room, and I'm a little concerned. Is he trying to get himself dressed, though he's not yet potty trained and sometimes that makes a mess? Is he trying to get himself breakfast, though there's milk and cereal everywhere? Is he doing something he should not, like climbing on the table or cutting his sibling's artwork? Right now, in his world of discovery, it's all about him. But unfortunately, most of us don't ever grow out of that. Like we learn over time how to make it about us in socially acceptable ways. We learn over time what we should or should not do, the boundaries of good and bad in the eyes of the culture, but it's still ultimately all about me and I am whatever I want to be. And I don't mean that to say like you can't aspire to be somebody different, but rather I am, meaning you can't tell me otherwise. You can't stop me or change me or convince me that it's not all about me. In fact, in our culture today, we have this rugged individualism that says, I want to be independent and strong-willed, and I don't need anybody for anything, anytime. So whatever I want, I can do. Now, we put some parameters around that as a culture, or obviously within reason, but for the most part, we think that we can just be free thinkers and independent and do as we please. I'm really sorry to tell you There's not a one of you who's free to do as you want or even free to think what you want to think. And and I don't mean to stand up here and tell you what you need to think or believe or feel. I just know the reality is every one of us is a product of somebody else. The way you think, the things you think about, the stuff that's important to you, what you love, what you pursue is a direct result of somebody somewhere teaching you those things. But when we think about teaching in our context, most of the time we think about teaching is a classroom setting, all right? We go to school, we learn a bunch of stuff we don't actually think we're ever going to need, and we get out in the real world, and then we can truly live. And we often think of teaching and education as what happens in the formal instructional time. But you and I are products of education and not exclusively the formal training, We're products of cultural education, the world around us that has shaped and formed the things we think and feel and believe. You and I are not individuals who can think as we please. Now that may be really challenging to hear, and you may have a whole host of reasons why you think otherwise. 
But we're going to look at Scripture and the simple invitation of Jesus. And we'll see how that same invitation for you and me today still gives us permission to be okay with not thinking for ourselves. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 4. I got it wrong last week, so I'll try to get it right this week. We're on page 1010, if you're following along in the Blue Bibles. They're in the pews in front of you or upstairs along the walls, page 1010, Matthew chapter 4. Perhaps you're familiar with this text. Here's how it goes. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Here in this text, Jesus is inviting his first few disciples. Perhaps you've heard the language of disciple in the church before. Anybody here know what a disciple is? Most of the time when we think of a disciple in our culture, the answer is, well, somebody who believes in Jesus. But the problem is, believing in Jesus is not discipleship. It's not being a disciple. You see, in our enlightenment culture, the individualism we believe to be true comes from an idea about 400 years ago that said, I think, therefore I am. That said, my identity wraps up in my ability to think and not only think, but think for myself. And so in this culture, we have placed our value in the things we know. Belief or knowledge is of the greatest ascent. If only we know more, believe better, understand better, then we will reach the point of being a disciple. But the problem with our American understanding of being a disciple or what a disciple is, is if it only matters that we believe the right things, what do we do with our belief? How does our belief change us? In fact, Scripture says that even the demons believe who Jesus is. What if there's more to being a disciple than just believing the right things? What if there's more than just thinking the right thoughts or understanding the right knowledge? What if Jesus' invitation, follow me, is less an intellectual or emotional consent and more a holistic surrender? of our entire selves saying, whatever you have in store, I'm going to follow after it. I will submit myself to a leader who's not me. Jesus, he invites these men, come and follow me. And immediately they leave what they're doing and they follow him. I want to back up a little bit to understand part of why this text is so incredible for you and me. 
See, in Jewish custom and tradition, especially in that day and age, they had two types of school that were really predominant. The first was what they called the house of the book. And this was school that started at about age five and went until about 12 or 13. Mostly led by the synagogue and led by the teachers of the faith, the the house of the book was there for one purpose and one purpose only, to teach every good Jewish boy and girl the entirety of the Torah or the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Numbers, though not in that order, I messed it up. These first five books of the Bible were taught from five till 12 or 13 in their entirety, and not just taught so you could know the content, so you could understand the meaning. They were taught in such a way that by the time you finished this first school, you had the entire first five books of the Bible memorized. How many of you can say you have the first five books of the Bible memorized? Or for that matter, any book of the Bible memorized? or even the order of the books of the Bible memorized? See, we have this culture where we have all of God's word available at our fingertips, and it's so readily available to us that we forget the severity of what this is. In their culture, they didn't have it available. The only way you received God's word was somebody else teaching you and reciting it for you. And so in the culture of memorizing God's word, it was because they couldn't carry it around. And the only way God can transform who we are, that we live our lives faithfully with him, is if we know what he tells us to do and to believe and to be. And so for most Jewish boys and girls at the time of Jesus, by the time you're 12 or 13 with the memorized first five books of the Old Testament, you were set and good to go. You needed nothing else to live a faithful life. And you then went and worked with your family business, either raising sheep or grain, or food, or blacksmith, whatever your family job was, that was the rest of your life. But for a handful, the highest elite, the smartest of the smartest, there was a second school. And this second school would be after you finished memorizing the first five books of the Bible, then you could continue school and memorize the entire rest of the Old Testament. So by the time you're in your early 20s, you have the entirety of the Old Testament memorized. Sounds like a good idea, right? Imagine being able to not only believe and comprehend, but have all of that stored in your heart that it was readily available when you're working in the fields or doing whatever you're doing. And when you're going through hard times, you can recall and remember God's word and it is filling you all the time. But there was an additional type of school for even more elite. For those who were good enough to continue to memorize the whole of the Bible, there was one additional level. In this context, you would seek out a master, a teacher, somebody called a rabbi, somebody who knew and understood not only all of the Old Testament, because that's just kind of common what everybody did, somebody who lived out their faith in such a way that when you looked at them, you said, I want to be them, and somebody who had profound ability to teach and to win others over, to help explain the more complicated things. And so you'd find a rabbi whose teaching you found really profound. And you would come to that rabbi and ask to follow him. And then the rabbi would quiz you 
with all the things you believed, not your knowledge of here's the entire Old Testament, but the small little nuances. What's your interpretation of this one verse? What do you make of so-and-so's teaching about that idea? And if after all of this quizzing, the rabbi believed that you really were somebody special, he would choose to let you become his disciple. See, in a disciple didn't just believe what the rabbi believed, but literally followed the rabbi wherever he would go. Whatever he was doing, they were right there behind. There was an old rabbinic saying that said, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. That is, may you be able to be so close to them, in proximity to them so often, that as they kick up dust from the ground as they walk, it would cover your clothes that you could hear every word they have to say, you could emulate everything they did, you could become in every way just like them. And there would come a point when these rabbis then would look at their disciples and see that they are fully in every way copying and a great representative of the teaching they had lived out. And they would release these disciples to go and to become rabbis themselves to pour into and teach others how to be exactly like them. Jesus comes to these ordinary guys who are fishing. He meets them there where they are, doing their family trade, presumably quite well, and probably being very lucrative at it. And he meets them there, and he sees Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, And he says, follow me. And Jesus flips the whole script. And the invitation to be a disciple, or as we could call it in our modern vernacular, an apprentice, one who learns everything the master knows and becomes just like them, rather than calling the elite and the best of the best and the people who are perfectly in agreement and alignment with all the things you say and do, Jesus instead invites these fishermen who probably had no more school than 12 12 years old. He says, follow me. And this invitation to be a student who is not just growing in knowledge, but in his holistic being to become like Jesus was so winsome, so inviting that they immediately left everything and they followed James and John, who we know had anger issues later in Scripture, they're called the sons of thunder. James and John, who often sought to be in control and have power and authority. Even Peter, who often opened his mouth and inserted his foot. These total boneheaded individuals are invited by Jesus. Come, follow me. And gives them a purpose. I will make you fishers of men. See, they were used to fishing. And now he says, look, using the thing you know. I'm going to teach you how to be somebody else and do something different. Something you never before thought you could do. And when they're invited to follow, immediately they leave the boat and their father and follow him. This invitation to discipleship is not just come and learn a bunch of stuff. This invitation of Jesus, come and be with me, in everything I do, 
Now, it's probable at this point that Jesus had already been speaking and doing miracles, depending on which gospel you read, changes where in the whole story as far as the events that came to be that this took place. It's probable they would have heard of the the wonder that Jesus had been attracting the crowds and the people, and perhaps they followed Jesus with the wrong motive. Maybe they thought to themselves, if I follow Jesus, I will gain more clout, I will gain more social status, I will become somebody great myself. Jesus later has to address that directly in Luke 9. He says, if you would come after me, must take up your cross and deny yourself and follow me. He says, look, to follow Jesus is not an invitation to clout and status and all the other people's opinions. To follow Jesus is actually surrender of all of who you are, to let go of who you thought you were becoming and become somebody altogether different. And then in proximity to Jesus, to begin to do the very things he did. Later on, there's a story where Jesus says to the disciples, go and preach this good news, and while you're at it, cast out demons. Anybody in here really comfortable? Let's just go and cast out demons. You've seen enough movies to say, I should maybe not do that until I know what I'm doing a little more. Jesus, he just says, go and do it. And they leave with no training, no instruction. The only thing they had was having been with Jesus and witnessed Jesus do these things. So they did. They came back and they were astounded. Jesus, you won't believe it. These things happened. Yeah, I I told you that would happen. Now go and do it some more. Over and over and over again, these disciples don't get it. They're by no means perfect with who they are or even how they follow Jesus. In fact, in his final moments there on the cross when he suffered and died, he was abandoned by all but one. And when they heard the good news that he had risen from the dead, they were all kind of in shock. I don't really know if this could be true, despite all the things they had seen him do. See, following Jesus is not about you and me getting it right. This is where in this place we often say, come as you are, because Jesus is not waiting for you to be the elite or the best or to have the answers or to figure it out. He's simply saying, come, follow me. And he will on the journey with you. You with him lead you to become so much more than you ever thought you could be. To become who he made you to be from the beginning. And this process of becoming who we were made to be is what we call discipleship. The process of becoming a disciple. Learning to be just like Jesus in everything we say and do in the way we carry ourselves in the world around us to be just like him for the sake of the world. The term Christian actually means little Messiah or little Christ. It was initially applied to Christians as a derogatory term. They think that they can save the world as they tell people about Jesus. At which point the Christians celebrated and said, you're right, we can as we tell people about Jesus, and don't just tell them, we show them Jesus in the way that we love one another, in the way that we do as he said, in the way that we submit ourselves, not perfectly, but filled with grace and awe and wonder. In fact, there's this really cool story in the the book of Acts 
where Peter, the same bonehead, invited here to follow Jesus. He sees a man who's lame and he heals him. Not on his own power. He says, look, I got nothing to give you, but what I do have is Jesus. So in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the guy is healed and everybody's filled with awe going, what just happened? And they're kind of mad because it's disrupting the social order. And they begin to quiz Peter and say, what's going on? How did this happen? And here's this little line I love. They were filled with awe at the boldness of Peter. And they took note that he was an ordinary, unschooled man who had been with Jesus. See, Jesus' invitation to follow is far more than just believing the right things. Do you want your life to be filled with things you cannot do or explain on your own? Do you want peace that surpasses understanding and joy that nobody can steal and love for your enemies and the ability to pray for those who persecute you? These are all things that come from proximity to Jesus, from being with him and learning from him to become like him in all things. Now, it's worth noting you will never save anybody from their sins. I promise you. Because you yourself are sinful, you will never save anyone. But you can, as a disciple, point them to your rabbi, the master, the teacher, the one you submit to. Say, let me show you where I've learned the things I've learned, how to be the person I have become. And this process of discipleship is one that does not ever end. You will never in your life reach a point where you are just the person God wants you to be fully. Not until Christ returns or you die and get to rest from all of your labors. So we press on day after day to follow Jesus. We're going to flip ahead to the end of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8. Jesus has suffered. He's died. All of his disciples have abandoned him. And then he comes back in his resurrected life and body to restore them and encourage them. And there's this incredible thing that happens at the very end. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. I just love that little inclusion of those three words. They are standing in front of the resurrected God, a man who suffered and died and then three days later conquered death. I would probably be filled with doubt too. Can this really be the case? Is this true? They worship him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So just a heads up, when you see all authority given to any one person, you should probably listen to what they have to say. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has these 12 guys who get it wrong consistently, but who walk in proximity to him so much that at the end of his life, after he's died and risen, as he's preparing to leave this earth, he has one singular plan for how the rest of the world will know who he is and what he's done. He looks at these disciples and says, go and make disciples. 
baptize and teach people. And it's not just teach them to know things, but to observe, to obey, to follow after the same way that you have been invited to follow. Go and make disciples. And he gives this bit of encouragement. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Our journey of making disciples begins with being a disciple. And being a disciple begins with being with Jesus and surrendering all of who we are, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and laying it before him and saying, Jesus, what will you have with all of this? What will you do with who I am? Who will you make me to become? Now, backing up a little bit, we have a problem, I think. In our culture in which we've made discipleship education or discipleship belief, or we've made following Jesus as simple as just showing up on Sunday mornings, and that's enough. In our culture where it's all about what we think and believe, we've lost out on how we actually become like Jesus. I think a lot of people hear this this command of Jesus, go and make disciples, and they say, that's great. How? I've never been made a disciple myself. See, the problem is, I mentioned from the beginning, we are all followers. We all live our lives and our thoughts and our experiences based on what other people have taught us to believe. Every one of us. There's this wonderful little picture, I think, of how you and I are shaped and formed. And there's two different realities, the accidental, unintentional, just reality of existing, and then there's the purposeful. So here's this first one, the the accidental. See, we are all shaped by the stories we believe. The things we believe to be true shape who we are. And oftentimes, we don't even think about the stories we believe. We're a sports fan because our parents were, or our community is, or we're not a sports fan because our community is, or the stories we believe are the advertisements we see on TV that tell us, if only you do or have these things, I will be enough. The stories we believe can be good and they can be bad, but they're there. Every one of us from the moment we're born begin to be told stories of what simply is or is not. And sometimes the stories we believe can be filled with all kinds of pain. And the things we believe about this world is that it's just terrible and horrible and we should run from it and ignore it. Sometimes the stories we believe can be full of joy and promise and hope. These things are neither good nor bad. They simply happen to us. Along with the stories we believe, the things that make us who we are, are the habits that we create. The things we do without even thinking about it. How many of you have driven to work before and arrived at work and wondered, how did I leave my driveway? I don't remember any of this. We get into rhythms and habits and patterns that just happen. And these things are really good. It allows us to not have to think about the day in and day out of our living. We don't have to worry when we wake up in the morning, What is today going to hold? What do I need to do today in order to survive? Our habits simply can be really helpful. But they also, these habits, form us to be a certain kind of person. I asked how many of you have memorized the Old Testament. I bet none of you have ever made the habit of trying to memorize 
the Old Testament. I promise if you spent 12 years every day of the week except for one, your day of Sabbath, if you spent six days a week seeking to memorize the Old Testament, at the end of 12 years, you would have good chunks of it memorized if not the whole thing. See, the habits we form, form us. But it's not just the stories we believe and the habits that we form, it's also the people around us. Your boss will change the way you think about the world. Your spouse, which is why it's so important to have a good spouse if you're looking to get married. Your friends, the people you hang out with will change who you are and the way that you live. These things are not good or bad, they simply are. You will follow after the culture around you. You see all of this unintentional formation happens in an environment. The fact that you live in East Tennessee will shape who you are in some way. Because who you are living in East Tennessee will be different than who you are living in Malibu, or living in Russia, or living in the U Ukraine. Who you are is shaped by the environment you live in. So paying attention to these things and recognizing these things, we can change who we are. We can pick up new habits, we can learn new stories, we can become somebody different, or it can just happen to us. You see, all of these things are active. They're things we do without even noticing. We believe without even reflecting on it. But there's also a passive way in which our environment and our experiences can shape us. And this would be intentional experiences we may form. For example, if you purposefully go to a concert, that concert will form some of the way you think and feel about the band or the person or whatever. If you go to a football game and the game goes great for the team of your choosing, that will shape the way you think and feel and behave towards that team. But if you go to the game and the team totally flops, that will change the way you think and feel and believe about that as well. Carefully curated experiences over the course of our life, be that our vacations or our plans, whatever, may change who we are. But when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus, there is an invitation. Not to reject all of these unintentional things, but to purposefully look at them and say, how am I being formed to be like Jesus? How am I becoming the kind of man or woman Jesus would have me to be? And these same things that can shape us accidentally can become something that shape us on purpose. And here's what it looks like. The way we change the stories we believe is through teaching. It's when we hear God's word and we begin to go, that is a narrative and a story I want to buy into. A God who's not angry and hate-filled, but gracious and loving. A God who is purposeful and has a plan. That is a story I want to follow after and believe in. Through purposeful teaching, we can learn all kinds of new things we can believe that change who we are. But our habits also can be reused and recycled. And we can purposefully begin to practice things that will form in us the kind of person we want to be. For example, if you want to be a more thoughtful person, you could purposefully take on the habit of reading a little bit every night. Or you could purposefully take on the practice of silence 
Anybody in here guilty of opening your mouth and inserting your foot in way too many conversations? And then you think about that thing for years to come, that one time you said something really dumb? You know how you can practice not doing that? Purposefully say nothing in a time where you want to say something. As you practice this, it begins to shape you and form you to become who you want to be. Not only through teaching and through practice, but also through community. Can we become who God made us to be? Can we purposely say, the friends I've been around are not actually good for me. The relationships I'm in are toxic, and not in a sort of way that says I'm holier and better than them, but they are actually holding me back from becoming who I want to be. And they're invited to join me on this journey, but I'm going to seek friendships and relationships and community that actually is helping me grow and not holding me back. And this purposeful spiritual formation, this process of following after Jesus, all of this happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you can do all the right things. You can believe all the right stuff. You can be around all the right community. But if God is not in the center of it, moving it and driving it and shaping it, you will never become who God made you to be. The problem is there's also a more passive thing that happens to us that shapes who we are as well. In the unintentional, it's the experiences we have, sometimes purposeful and sometimes not, but those experiences of life shape us. In purposeful transformation, becoming like Jesus, following after him and apprenticing under Jesus, most of the time the things that change us that we have no control over the really hard knocks of life, the painful moments, the things we wish didn't happen and we would do whatever we could to change. It's there in those moments that the Holy Spirit, through the right community and practice and teaching, there in those moments of hardship that we see a God who suffers for us, a God who's promised to wipe away every tear and to heal every wound, a God who knows all of our pain and our sorrow and doesn't just love us for it. He actually walks through it with us. And when you and I see this invitation to follow Jesus as more than intellectual pursuit or academic awareness or belief, but a holistic being, am I like the disciples? Surrender to whatever Jesus has in store. When we begin to learn new things and practice new habits and surround ourselves with the right kind of people who lead us further, we create space in our life for the Holy Spirit to change us. And I promise you, if you want to heed Jesus' words and make disciples, it will only ever happen as the overflow of what's happening in you not as you pouring everything you've got out for that purpose. So when we submit ourselves to become no longer an individual about me, but a follower who lays everything down for the sake of a God who's given everything for you and me, in that our lives will be made full and the world around us will be transformed to see a good God that in you and me they see a little 
tiny bit of Christ, a Savior for the world who loves unconditionally. This is my hope and my prayer for you. Will you pray with me? God, you spoke to the disciples. said, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Holy Spirit, you today still invite us to follow you. To surrender our own self. To take up our cross and to deny who we are becoming in our own strength. That we can learn to be with you and to become like you. And over time, Lord, to do the types of things you did for the sake of our neighbor, for the sake of those who are far off, who do not yet know of your grace and your love. God, I pray that we as a church would be committed to not just accidentally stumbling our way through life, but purposely seeking to reorient ourselves that in all things you are the one we look to, the one we trust in, the one we're becoming more like. And God, may we love as you have first loved us. May we forgive as you forgive us. May we become in all things for all people who you have been for us, gracious and forgiving, merciful and kind. God, we ask that you would, in each one of us, receive all glory and honor and power forever and ever. Amen. Every week we invite you here in this place to trust the Lord with an offering. An offering is not an obligation, it's not an expectation, it's an invitation to say, God, I want you to be at the center of all my finances and all of my life, and I want you to be at the center of everything I do in this life. And so if you call this place your home, and you came prepared to give a gift today, an offering of trust in the Lord, and you would like to do so with cash or check, you can do so in the black boxes as you exit later. If you filled out one of those teal cards that says connect at the top with a way we can pray for you, a way that we can connect with you and contact you, you can place those in the black box as well. And if you're somebody who prefers to give online, you can do so at thepointknocks.com by clicking the little button in the bottom corner. However you give and whatever you give, know this. We don't give to get God's love, but because we already have it. Thank you. The last couple of weeks, I've been inviting those of you who have a loved one who's died in the last couple of years in faith to share with us a picture and their name and when they died. Uh, it's not too late. If you would like to do that, you can email michelle at thepointknocks.com. And next Sunday when you come, we're going to do something special to remember and honor um, and celebrate those who have died in faith before us. So with that, uh, what questions came in today? So we have three questions. The first one says, when Jesus healed Jairus' daughter, he told the witnesses there to tell no one. After other miracles he performed, he told them to go and tell what, the, what they had seen and heard. Why were there times he didn't want his miracles or power revealed? Did it have to do with the timing of his persecution and death? Great question. Yeah, sometimes he said some really confusing things like, don't tell anybody. And you know what happened every time he said, don't tell anybody? They went and told everybody. It's just like children. Uh, 
But part of why he said it was that last part, was it related to the timing of his death? Yeah, absolutely. Jesus knew when he was to die. And so some of it was, if you tell people these things now, you might speed up the process. But some of it also was because the, the miracles he did, like the water into wine and the raising the dead and all kinds of incredible things, was not the point. He wasn't there just to be a miracle worker, though he does continue to heal the sick and feed the hungry even today. No, he was there to reveal to them God and his grace and his love and to ultimately suffer and die in our place. And so part of why he said, don't tell anybody, was because he knew those miracles and things would be a distraction from what really mattered. Uh, And similar today, we see churches that really focus on the miracles in such a way that at times the gift of who Jesus is is forgotten. Um, And that's why he said, don't tell anybody. Um, So the second one isn't a question. Um, It says, let Emily know that the 95 Thesis were posted 506 years ago. 1517, there you go. Uh, And the 95 Theses largely had to do with what authority does the Pope have to sell people salvation? Uh, And as we would say, he doesn't, because you can't buy salvation. Pretty simple. Okay, and then the last one says, bless you, Pastor. You just described theosis by beginning to teach us what discipleship really is and what it is for. We're being transformed into the likeness of Christ. I look forward to learning more into unity of purpose and healing among his whole church on earth. Good stuff, my friend. Thanks and peace. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks. Yeah. Um... I'm excited. So a couple weeks ago, uh, Melissa and I had an opportunity to go to California and to spend a couple of days um, literally sitting in front of a guy who's been doing this really well for a long time and just learn. And it was incredible. Uh, If you want to get Melissa fired up about anything, just ask her what she learned and you'll be stuck for the entire potluck talking with her. Um, It was like a fire hose of just things we knew, but clearly articulated in a way that just made so much sense. And so over the coming year, um, we both are working with this individual and his team to really work hard on how do we articulate these things well here that every one of us can learn to grow with Jesus each and every day. And hopefully through that also to help others grow with Jesus. And so um, thanks for that, whoever texts that in, and I'm really excited for what's to come. Anything else? Uh, That's it. Awesome. I have one other thing. Do you prefer your marshmallow black or lightly brown? Completely charred. Completely charred. (laughs) Well, you're welcome in this place too, all right? Uh, Here in a moment, we're going to be having a potluck. We do have a couple of fires with some sticks and pokers, things. You can cook some hot dogs over the fires or some marshmallows for s'mores. And I saw a bunch of you bringing food in as you came in, so it's hopefully back there. If not... It will be in a moment when you bring it back there. Um, Please feel free to stick around. We're going to enjoy this final Sunday, uh, fifth Sunday in in, uh, 2023, and we're going to have a lot of fun together. So with that, before you go, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, 
simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.